0: If we're going to be um, a country where the, the enforcement of matters of fraud we're talking about here, real financial fraud, some some cases multi-billion pound, uh, multi-billion pound, maybe even multi-billion pound frauds, um, if if the if the participants can't rely on the law, then they're unlikely to think that the UK is a good place to do business.
1: Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. This week's question, what's wrong with the serious fraud office? The SFO has had several controversies in recent history. Just earlier this month, the G4S case was dropped as a result of a failure to disclose evidence that was a case against some senior G4S executives. Now, according to a new IA report, Fraud Focus, the organization has long suffered from cultural and institutional failings. To discuss this topic, I'm excited to be joined by the report author, uh, Dr. James Forder, who's the academic and research director here at the IA, as well as uh, a tutor at Bale College, Oxford. Um, James, let's start off with with the real basics here, because I presume most people have never actually heard of the SFO. Um, what, what
0: is the SFO? The, S- the SFO is a specialist agency for the investigation and prosecution of, as the um, legislation says, serious and complex fraud. Um, it's, it's for the big cases and the complicated cases. And some of the cases are very complicated indeed. It has uh, special powers um, in investigation and it has the, in Britain, the unusual feature of combining investigation and prosecution. So it's responsible for both. It will investigate, and depending on what it thinks of the investigation, obviously prosecute as well. So that's all under the one roof, rather than having, as it were, the police investigating the Crown Prosecution Service.
1: And what's the underlying logic of why this has been uh, designed in this this format? Because, as you said, traditionally the police would investigate, but the Crown Prosecution Service would prosecute any, I suppose, most other crimes. Why has the SFO got this special model?
0: Uh, I think because of the complexity, it's, it dates from the 1980s, there was an inquiry into this. It was felt that before then, prosecution of serious fraud had been um, unsatisfactory. Um, and the, um, with the thought, of course, there's a, there's a whole report on this, but the thought would be that the um, complexities of the cases are much more easily handled by having a single team, potentially, a single individual in the lead, potentially. Um, handling the case all the way through so that uh, we don't end up with the prosecutors wishing that some detail point had been investigated and the investigators hadn't thought of investigating it, and so the case fails for that kind of reason. Or alternatively, the investigators needing thing, uh, investigating things that are of no use to the prosecutor. Mm. Um, Just because of the complexity of it, it would be hard to, if the police are taking fingerprints to see whether somebody broke into a house, well, they know what to do, they don't need to be the same organisation as the prosecutor for that.
1: And what is the, I suppose, the importance of the SFO and prosecuting financial crime?
0: Well, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at that. One thing would be um, the enforcement of law and order. Um, it, that's always important. In a country that aspires to or has been aspires to remain a global financial centre, we really do have to be able to Count on the rules being followed. We've people have got to understand what the rules are. But then, if we're going to be um, a country where the the enforcement of matters of fraud we're talking about here, real financial fraud, some some cases multi billion pound, uh, multi billion pound, maybe even multi billion pound frauds. Um, if if the if the participants can't rely on the law, then they're unlikely to think that the UK is a good place to do business but then there's a further thought as well which is of course these are big money frauds by rich people <laughs> if they're happening and you know it's not all right to say uh, to take a, a slack attitude to the enforcement of the law on rich people um, and some of these are very very rich people with very very big frauds or alleged frauds of course it's important to apply the law properly there and make the prosecution stick.
1: So yeah, I suppose is that, that underlying moral case about uh, the rule of law and ensuring that people are prosecuted for their crimes and then there's the, the broader kind of, uh, you know, if you look at the political economy or institutional design, that you want to have a system where people know that if they invest their money in the UK, if someone does commit a fraud against them, that it'll be properly tackled. Now I suppose that's where the problem has often been with the SFO, which is it's managed to embroil itself in, in quite a number of failures. And, and your report, it's almost, a, I think, was described by the Times as a charge sheet of, uh, in its own right, of going through the, the history of the failures of the SFO. I mean, what, what stands out to you from
0: your research? Well, what I, I did not know about this, the, all these problems before I started doing the research. And were, I think there were two legs to it. One leg is that the the law and the rules of prosecution um, are indeed very complicated. It's not only the cases that are complicated, it's the law that's complicated as well. And I can see that that does make things difficult for an investigator and a prosecutor. Um, And I think there's various aspects of the law need to be looked into there. Secondly, though, um, complex and difficult as it is, the Serious Fraud Office was created precisely for the purpose of acquiring expertise in handling these complexities. And it does seem as if again and again they make related mistakes. We certainly won't say they make the same mistake, but related mistakes. You mentioned disclosure earlier on, there's much more to be said about that. Again and again they're making mistakes there. But there's also an aspect, seemingly, and one can hardly believe one's eyes when one sees the sometimes trivial improprieties that get in the newspapers sometimes very substantial ones but the the um unacceptable behavior of some of the officers in the sfo has created quite a quite a catalog itself and i must think that something is wrong culturally in an organization like that so i said there were two things perhaps there were three there's the complexity of the law there's the, the mistakes that the SFO has made, and there's the behaviour of the individuals um, on a recurring and mysteriously recurring basis. Yeah,
1: it seems like what, what happens here effectively is that the SFO will make a big deal about trying to investigate a particular issue. I, I suppose very legitimately there's been some allegation of fraud. It'll then in some way, um, in, in a multitude of cases, make quite fundamental errors as investigated as prosecutors and then after spending millions of taxpayer pounds investigating some case there have been these cases again and again that the g4s one being the most recent one where they've been forced to drop the case so th- it's very much justice not done properly in two respects. One, if these people are innocent, then the SRO has been investigating them for many years. This has been held over them effectively for su- for such a long period of time. And that's unfair um, to to people who are the defendants, absolutely. but also to the the public. If there was a genuine case against them, they've, they've screwed up the case that they were meant to do, and they've wasted the taxpayer money in the process.
0: And and the fraud has gone unpunished in that case. Yes, absolutely. So the um, the cases the to illustrate a little more firmly the, the problem of disclosure, uh, which has again and again um, caused a problem for the SFA, the, the point is that the, very commonly the prosecutor will be in possession of evidence which is useful to the defence, and the. There's a general rule that such evidence must be disclosed to the defence. The defence doesn't have the investigatory powers that the prosecutor has. The prosecutor is not allowed to, as a general legal principle, the prosecutor is not allowed to um, investigate the matter and then, as it were, present all the evidence seeming to point to guilt and conceal the... Surprise! Yeah, they've got to to be open about the whole collection of evidence they have. So they must disclose to the defence the materials which are potentially relevant to the defence. Now, that's certainly difficult because there are millions, some of these cases, millions of documents and electronic resources. um, And they all have to be one way or another checked to see whether they are disclosable, they should be disclosed. Um, But there you are, you know, that's one part of the expertise the SFA is supposed to have. When they um, disclose improperly, incorrectly, then later on it turns up that something or other should have been uh, disclosed, Then either the case fails right the case is still ongoing and it fails right there because somehow it's gone wrong at an earlier stage or they end up in appeal and somebody says well if i'd known that then i'd have had a different and better defense and okay. the case gets overturned on appeal and exactly as you say this is, this is a, a catastrophe all round some innocent people being subject to investigation and trial which might go on for years um some guilty people one supposes, but it doesn't know, of course, some guilty Mm. people, presumably um, not being convicted because of a failure of disclosure, which has created sufficient doubt for the um, case not to go ahead or to be overturned, conviction to be overturned. And millions of pounds wasted, yes, as you say, and the law not enforced. So so those are the cases where I suppose it's it's
1: it's more serious. But in other cases that you discuss uh, in the report, it comes off a little bit more of like a soap opera. (laughs) <laughs> you, you've got uh, the, the case with um, the former Liberal leader, Sir David Steele, who, uh, as I think was meant to be an April Fool's joke, they forged a letter.
0: Apparently so, yes. It, it was, the case has nothing whatever to do with Sir David himself. He, he happened to have um, made public comments on the handling of the case um, and uh, the appearances that the serious fraud Office found it rather difficult. And so they managed to turn up and present uh, one of the barristers with a letter purporting to be from Sir David um, saying that he was going to show up on behalf of one of the uh, participants in the trial. There was was apparently nothing in this. It was was almost a case of serious fraud. Well, it's unserious serious fraud. And the explanation given was that it was an April Fool joke. Well, you know, it's not all right for the public prosecutors to be playing April fool jokes during court proceedings on leading politicians. Yes. That, that isn't okay. It's not funny either.
1: And you? another case that was maybe a little bit more serious as well was when the SFO accused a judge of collusion.
0: Well, apparently so this is a complicated matter. There, there was, there was a, a suggestion that a judge was going to be investigated supposedly for um, more or less being in cahoots with an accused person who was said to be wanting to try to escape the country. Um, And some of the facts about this are very odd. The judge was most put out about it and ended up, we do know he ended up getting an apology from the (laughs) Serious Fraud Office for this. So there was something going on there. Yes, quite so. It's an extraordinary allegation. And of course, crushing, if there'd been anything in it, which of course there wasn't, if there'd been anything in it, there were crushing, blow against the English judicial system generally. Mm. The judge, if, had it turned out, of course it didn't, but had it turned out, the judge was doing this. Um, so the accusation of it needs to be very carefully considered, but apparently this SFO managed to lose the plot sufficiently.
1: And in an ironic twist, in a, in a separate case, the SFO was actually in cl- inclusion with the defence attorney.
0: This, this is... defence lawyer, I should say. The, um, yeah this is um an astonishing case yes the the um the chief lawyer for the defense was apparently supplying information to the prosecutor now of course that's a a breach of um professional conduct rules by the lawyer that that that's mm. obvious uh, but it's also not acceptable behavior by the prosecutor and the prosecutor you know, it's it's easy to um perhaps from outside the judicial system form the impression that the prosecutor's job is to get a conviction. Well, it's not. The prosecutor is an agent of the public seeking to um, bring about just outcomes. There are rules about how that can be done. And the defence lawyer's job is to defend the the client. Well, the prosecutor, therefore acting for the public, cannot be colluding with the defence lawyers trying yeah. to do down his own client. Do you, do you ever
1: feel sometimes just reading through all this, you could almost imagine a TV show? You know, the the, 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 the SFL was some weird kind of soap opera like The Office, or yes. uh, or maybe or, even a little bit like Veep or something. It just seems so ridiculous that, that this supposedly august organisation has got quite quite quite
0: up. so much. How they could have thought that that was? How anybody in the organisation could have thought that was acceptable behavior. It's just incomprehensible. Yeah. That's astonishing.
1: So on, on to, I suppose, back to come the more kind of uh, serious questions in, in terms of the way um, the SO operates. And um, there's this quite heavy use you talk about of deferred prosecution agreements. Right. So how do, how do they operate? And, and what are the, some of the issues with that?
0: Well, the, the, the principle is that when um, an organization, a company presumably is under investigation for a fraud, um, it can enter into an agreement with the Serious Fraud Office to change its behaviour and set up checks and all the rest of it, and very probably pay a fine uh, or well pay an amount. Um, and by this, and the the SFO for its part doesn't prosecute and stops the investigation and doesn't prosecute. So um, it's. It, lawyers won't like me saying this but never mind it's of the family of a plea bargain Mm. it's like saying well all right we'll change our behavior if you don't prosecute us Um, it's not a plea bargain because in the rules um, there there need be no admission of culpability by the company so they are um, as it were morally in the clear they're not admitting to anything being done but they may be paying a large amount of money now this is um, a problematic. Um, you know, one can, one can see the motive for it because it saves on the expenses of and difficulties of prosecution. It saves on the uncertainties of prosecution as well. It gets quick resolution, but it's very problematic um, because um, it doesn't properly achieve justice. It threatens um, a world. Where um, paying these sorts of amounts it becomes like a cost of business. These these matters are legally very complex, and I can well imagine a company, a large company, not being quite sure whether it may be in breach of a regulation somewhere. Mm. The serious fraud office comes along, and starts investigating. And you say, well, you know, what's the best thing to do here? Fight this all the way, um, or accept the fact that we might have done something wrong. Yeah. We don't even, might not even be guilty in their minds. Um, now, meanwhile, at the other end, I'm very concerned that the serious fraud Office has had such difficulty bringing successful prosecutions for these various reasons, that the temptation on it to look to the deferred prosecution agreement as a preferred outcome um, must be quite strong and then we're in a very nasty situation where both sides would rather settle for an amount of money and neither of them is powerfully motivated to secure justice. It's, and that's what I mean by becoming a cost of business. Yeah. It's a very undesirable outcome. I think there's more to it because I'm um, I'm very uneasy about the way that the Serious Fraud Office has started reporting the amounts um, raised which of course have become public funds the the amounts from the companies entering into deferred prosecution agreements um it, presenting these amounts raised as as it were in themselves a success but they're a success for the exchequer they're not a success for the justice system
1: indeed and I, in fact i think in response to your report um, the, the SFO basically said, you know, we've, we've dealt with all these issues and we've raised X amount of money, but that doesn't deal with the underlying question about the rule of law. I'm mean, going just come to, I um, suppose, what you think is, is driving this and therefore what might be some of the uh, remedies to what the um, SFO has been, been doing and all the problems that, that you've identified?
0: Right. Well, the rules of disclosure, certainly very complicated. Um, and it's a lawyer's problem too understand what could be done to simplify that. Um, It occurred to me that it may be an opening for artificial intelligence. It's and clearly AI devices could be used in any case. But the question is whether we'd like a a legal recognition that on some terms to be determined uh, documents that have been checked by approved artificial intelligence stay checked you know, there, there isn't an appeal lying from failure to disclose a document that was checked in the proper way now that's quite a dramatic step because there could be exculpatory documents that escape the ai and check but on the other hand this could um you know, we're, we're not serving justice as we are so we have a dilemma here mm. um, so that'd be a possibility but in any case s- uh, serious attention to the matter of Defining disclosability and making it a practical yeah. operation to get through millions and millions of documents to decide what to disclose—that would be one. Um, there's another problem about the um, the exact uh, definition of culpability um, for in corporate prosecutions, and there's um, the the law here is old and it requires speak a bit roughly, of course, because the law's technical, but it requires that to be the prosecutors to identify an individual who knew what they were doing, they knew they were doing something that shouldn't be done and was properly in control of the doing of it. And um, in a a large corporation very possibly isn't such a person. The the people who know what they're doing may be at one level of management um, and the people actually doing the deed are other people. So there's no individual who's properly identified in this kind of way. Now, there's a sort of legal dilemma there as to in what sense the corporation is guilty of something if there's no individual in it who is guilty of anything. Um, but we do we recognise that elsewhere in the Bribery Act. The um, companies have an obligation to Um, prevent bribery occurring. So there's an offense of failure to prevent. Mm. Um, Now, it seems to me that a failure to prevent um, rule in relation to fraud is probably much more um, enforceable through the kinds of processes we can reasonably have than is um, an identification on these rather technical rules of individuals. So I think that, um, again, of course, that's a um, a matter of deep law and yes. serious investigation.
1: Institutional legal changes, yeah. Yes.
0: And the third question that comes up, or perhaps it's two related questions, is about whether the complexity of the trials really means that we have to reconsider trial by jury. Um, there's the, the trials are very complicated. It's not um, altogether reasonable to think that a typical jury certainly will fully understand it. It plainly is the case that the uh or the traditional reason or part of the traditional reason that the jury bring common sense to the ordinary citizens common sense to uh, a matter of determining guilt well common sense doesn't have much role in these cases so that rule is um that presumption is i think very weak um, there, there are other considerations such as that if there is to be a jury then the case almost surely will have to go very slowly because, insofar as the jury can be made to understand, the can be brought it's to understand. Take, the, it takes a long, long time, long time yeah. to do it. So the alternative would be, uh, well, we could have judge-determined cases, of course, but we could also have expert panels, like a tribunal system, where the, um, there's a panel which is separate from the judge. So the judge is still running the case. There's still a prosecutor and a defender, and there's in place of the jury there's a panel, but. Uh, expert panel um, would certainly allow the cases to go faster um, and would probably get uh, outcomes that conform closely to the law. So, and there's, a, there's another thought actually which is that uh, one tends to think of the jury system as being something that accused people welcome, but it's not so clear that that's true because in some of these cases the uh, an individual who's been accused of a serious fraud has been. Has been all over the newspapers. They've been held up to public vilification for what they've supposedly done, and they might think they'd rather have an expert panel than newspaper reading jury. <laughs> you know, they might might secure justice better that way. To have people practised yeah. in shutting out of their minds what's been. Said
1: so intended. I suppose uh, what you've just listed would deal with some of the, I suppose, more practical issues of of um, doing the prosecuting, but. At another level, and I think discussed this, it seems the SFO has some deeper kind of cultural issues where it's making these, I suppose, laughable errors or, um, you know, quite clear unprofessional behaviour. Now, some have said that the SFO perhaps should be abolished and its powers reallocated in some way. Are you sympathetic at all to those arguments? Yes, I am.
0: I think the the bad behaviour, there have been some dramatic cases, as we discussed, of bad behaviour and some pretty trivial but worrying ones. But there have also been a number of reports of um, poor management and the recurring matter of disclosure hasn't been effectively handled. There were, they have guide, internal guidelines on disclosure, but then there's these things are um, criticised by the inspectors. And so there's there appears to be a widespread management problem there. There have been reports on it which have and described a culture to um, ignore the rules, for example. These, so it's, it's, you know, it's far from there's been an April Fool joke played on a politician. And, it's, it, and this has been going on now for decades. And one does have to think that maybe it, instead of appointing new managers and you know, trying to clean up, it would be better to um, simply shut it down disperse the staff, start again, set up a new organisation to do the same thing or um, possibly reorganise the way it's done with the question of whether the uh, prosecutorial and investigative functions should be combined might arise. I I suspect probably they should be kept together and that makes it fit slightly poorly with the rest, most of the rest of the other parts of the system that work like that, but it makes it fit slightly poorly. So it takes some um, institutional design, but the idea that after all these poor outcomes and adverse reports and um, doubts now emerging about the uh, appropriateness of the use of deferred prosecution agreements um, and the the plain failings of propriety, the, you know, maybe it's just the practical thing is to start again. I, I, so I do have sympathy with that, but again, mm. it's all. Yeah, you know, there's there's many aspects to it, and it takes proper expertise to assess the options.
1: Well, indeed, James, thank you so much for thank joining you. the IA podcast. If you'd like to learn more about uh, the Serious Fraud Office, you can read James's report on the IA website, or also be in the the notes um, for, for this episode. Uh, if you are enjoying the IA content, uh, please do subscribe on YouTube or uh, to this podcast feed on your chosen podcast provider. Well, if you enjoyed that conversation, why not watch one of these other videos? And while you're here, remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way you'll never miss out on a single IEA broadcast.